Welcome to Stars and Swords. I'm Alistair Stevens. This week, we approach the end of the world and the end of the book with chapters 30 to 41 of Terry Miles' Rabbits, in which we meet the mysterious murmur, watch a movie with the magician, play an old-school text adventure, and then unforgivably lose Chloe in a coffee shop bathroom. This is a more plot-intensive reading than we have had previously. It is also a shorter reading than we have had previously. So this show may well end up being a few minutes shorter than average, but since all the other shows in this series have been 15 or 20 minutes longer than I originally intended, I think it will all work out. And we're going to begin, as is our way, by rewinding a little to last week's discussion of the Public Radio Alliance slash Minnow Beats Whale podcasts, and specifically their style. I described last week what Terry Miles and his collaborators do as a pastiche of NPR-style, serial-style podcasts, and that raised some questions about what exactly I meant. Do I think that Rabbits is making fun of serial and podcasts like it? Is it even appropriate to use true crime stories as fuel for a strictly fictional creative endeavor, particularly something that is to some extent a horror story? I think that these are both fair questions, and they both strike at the heart of what Rabbits is in context, so let's get into it. Part of the problem with the word pastiche is that it comes into English with multiple meanings, many of which overlap in an interesting way. In one sense, a pastiche is any work of art that imitates the work of another artist. At its most basic level, pastiche is simply imitative. But it comes to English from the Italian pasticcio, which literally means a pie filling or a pate made from a number of ingredients combined into a paste. It's used metaphorically for pasticcio opera in the 18th century, which are themselves a patchwork or a medley of the works of other composers. So the word as we use it today already has this connotation of being composed of parts from various sources, though the degree to which this is a necessary element of pastiche varies from person to person. That combinatory aspect, too, can lend a further connotation of a somewhat careless, broad-stroke kind of work, that a pastiche is superficial or inelegant or careless. And that certainly isn't what I mean when I use the word pastiche with regard to these podcasts, but I have to acknowledge that there is an association. We don't get to completely control the connotative qualities of the words we use when they are received by an audience. What really distinguishes pastiche, though, and this is similarly a kludgy, inelegant bit of definition, is that it isn't parody. Parody, like pastiche, is imitative. It also usually draws upon more than one source, but it's distinct from pastiche in two ways. Parody has a capacity to heighten, to elevate, to adapt, or to transform the source works, though it doesn't always do that. And, of course, parody is intended as a critique of the source works, highlighting their silliness or excess or poor execution or some other quality that the creator of the parody finds worthy of critique. Pastiche, then, in general, is derivative of the source work but preserves and honors that source work. Parody is also derivative of the source work but critiques or dismisses that source work. So, in the simplest sense, no, Rabbits is not making fun of Serial, even though it is cribbing extensively from that show's playbook. It is pastiche in its true form. And I think that because it mimics not content, but structure and style, that the imitation isn't generally in bad taste. Though I will also add that at a couple of points in their history, the Minnow Beats Whale podcasts have crossed my personal line into something that I would consider distasteful. 
such as the inclusion of the real-life death of Elisa Lam at the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles in 2013. I will link that story in the show notes rather than go over it here to satisfy your personal curiosity. But an episode of the Tannis podcast and an episode in the second season of the Rabbits podcast both include references to an odd and distasteful speculative theory about the death of Lam, and reference a real-life video of Lam, which was taken shortly before her disappearance and yeah, taking a recent real-life tragedy, particularly one which is mysterious and such an object of fascination for the more conspiratorially-minded corners of the internet, and including it in your fictional show as evidence or support for your fictionalized construct, that crosses a line for me personally, but you might draw that line in a different place. But in general, Rabbits is pastiche rather than parody. Serial and that form of podcasting, though, isn't the only thing that Rabbits is pastiching. And this, as I'm sure you'll be glad to hear, is where we get back to the book. I'm drawing here on the academic work of Linda Hutchin, a literary theorist out of the University of Toronto, who wrote a remarkably influential text in 1985 called A Theory of Parody, The Teachings of 20th Century Art Forms, which, as the title suggests, situates parody as a major form of modern, self-reflexive, ironic art. And by extension, validates pastiche as a neighboring form which uses the same kinds of techniques. And both forms, crucially, do not try to disguise their connections to their source texts. There's no duplicity in either parody or pastiche, no attempt to pass off those imitative qualities as original. They work because the audience already knows the reference. Postmodernism in literature, as distinct from other areas of study, becomes established in the United States in the 1960s, really in the works of Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller and John Barth and the like, emerging from the prior theoretical scholarly work of Barth and Foucault and postmodern pioneers like Nabokov and Kerouac and dozens of others. Literary postmodernism is defined by one thing above all others. It is preoccupied by metafiction, by self-reflexivity, by intertextuality. It is a self-aware medium. These books are in conversation with themselves and with each other and with the culture at large. And one of the primary modes of that conversation, of course, is parody and pastiche. In a sense, I think this is the artistic movement of the latter half of the 20th century, and it only accelerates as we move toward the 90s, which makes sense because as the century approached its end, there was this prevailing sense that we were somehow at the end of history, that our major problems had been solved and that uh, benevolent capitalism would solve those which remained, that conflict was over and technology would carry us into the utopian future that the baby boomers had been promised. And it's at this point, in the works of Douglas Copeland and Brett Easton Ellis and David Foster Wallace, that the cast-adrift writers of Generation X begin to feed on the past and the present, on the popular culture, on the shibboleths of North American arrested development indefinitely adolescent life, on breakfast cereals and TV shows and music and all the trappings of a small, obedient life in a culture poised at the end of history. And there's a direct line from those books, from that sense, to rabbits, via the specificity of the cultural references, of using these symbols as a means of establishing more than just time and place, but rather cultural connectivity. And much more importantly, rabbits inherits a kind of restless desire for there to be more. We see this very clearly from Kay at the beginning of this week's reading, in fact. Quote, As a kid, I'd been interested in, read obsessed with, things that fell outside of our normal human experiences. 
Not only paranormal and supernatural things like ghosts, ESP, and UFOs, but also stuff like religion, astrology, and mythology. I tried Ouija boards and seances, even whispering Bloody Mary into a mirror, but I was never able to conjure anything paranormal. I would have given anything to have seen a ghost. That would have been confirmation there was something else out there. That desire to know for sure that there is something else out there, the simultaneous desire to have a new frontier to explore and to know that the boring structures of everyday life were never as flat and straightforward as they appeared to be, that desire to know that history had not in fact ended, that desire becomes a major part of pop culture in the 1980s with the rise of urban fantasy, and then in the 90s with the rise of modern conspiracy fiction, the X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Jim Butcher novels and the start of Neil Gaiman's career and Harry Potter's super-secret world of wizards, Stories which take place just underneath the real world, but which incorporate the details of the real world into their narrative landscape, and in so doing feel more real themselves, develop a kind of ironic, plausible deniability wherein the guise of this is just fiction just makes the story seem more true. This is what Kay is searching for. This is what Rabbits is, from its navigation by pop cultural landmarks to its fusion of conspiracies and video games and art and commercialism and everything else. This is the 90s pastiche of all Anglo-American culture. Although, technically, I suppose this is second wave 90s pastiche, since we're talking about creators who grew up with Copeland and Foster Wallace and are now revisiting it. It's Stranger Things, and it's Scott Pilgrim, and it's Ready Player One. In fact, it's more than just the pastiche of all Anglo-American culture, because that still to some extent communicates multiplicity, variety, heterogeneity. In fact, part of what allows for this pastiche to be so all-engaging, all-encompassing, is the recognition, per the 1990s, that art and politics and consumerism and relationships and sex and religion and philosophy and cartoons and mass-market, mass-produced breakfast cereal are all the same thing, and that's all there is. And obviously, we know now that history didn't end. We know now that it was naive to believe that the battles had been won and that the wars were over. And I ought to clarify, I suppose, that even at the time, there wasn't really a collapsed monocultural melange such as the one I've described. That was only one aspect of life in the United States, and by extension, by virtue of cultural export, the Anglophonic world beyond. But it was a powerful cultural presence, and it did feel to those who were inside it as if it really was everything. The point is that this is what Rabbits inherits. This is what it draws on. This is the interchangeability of pop cultural artifact and icon of significance. This blurring of life and fiction and politic and personal objectivity and subjectivity, real and unreal. All of which is to say, then, that Rabbits is indeed a pastiche of a very particular sort, of two particular sorts. A pastiche, in the traditional sense, of Serial and NPR and the other podcasts of that form, but also a pastiche of the pastiche that was mid-90s culture. More on that, perhaps, next week. Let me offer a brief synopsis of this week's reading, then, before we get into it. Kay and Chloe, our intrepid heroes, visit with the Navidsonians, a self-help group for Rabbits players who want to moderate their engagement with the game. But it turns out that the Navidsonians are really a think tank manipulated by the player known as Murmur. Neil is murdered by forces unknown, and with his dying breath directs Kay to a key, which in turn leads to a Super 8 film of the magician encountering some supernatural force. 
Kay is chased through the streets and winds up back at Baron Corduroy's apartment, discovers an old text adventure game, finds a strange song by Steely Dan, delves into the secrets of an old fantasy novel, loses time, and then loses Chloe in a Starbucks bathroom, is chased by the ever-growing darkness to the end of the road, and then blacks out, setting the stage for our very short reading next week and the end of the book. We begin then with The Navidsonians, which, as the book confirms, is a reference to the Mark Danielewski novel House of Leaves, a classic postmodern ergodic novel about, well, it's about lots of things, honestly, but which is distinguished by its complicated, nested narrative layers and unconventional page layout. I recommend that book very enthusiastically, and if I can ever figure out how to do it, I would love to cover it on this podcast someday. The Navidsonians reveal the information about the hidden level in the video game Zompocalypso, which is a terrible name, and sets the stage for our encounter with Murmur later, and also leaves us with this tantalizing fragment right at the end when Darla says that part of the reason they play in the safe environment is to ensure that the game isn't, ominous ellipsis, following us. And we're going to spend some time in this week's reading both being followed and thinking about being followed, thinking about the forces which are maneuvering in this world closer to and further away from K. This thought, though, that the game is somehow reactive, that an engagement with it is necessary to keep you safe, but too much of an engagement will turn the tables and, and ultimately put you in danger, this is emblematic of the creepypasta phenomenon, which we discussed a couple of episodes ago, in which a constant trope is the idea that knowledge itself is dangerous. Knowledge itself will guide the monster, the creature, the force to you. Here we're writing that line. Kay and Chloe return home, and we get the odd beat with Kay waking in the night and feeling that there's something wrong with the bedroom, which leads us into the quote about the paranormal that I read earlier, which in turn carries us to Kay getting out of bed and going to the roof. And this is weird in a couple of ways. So let's note the obvious one first, I suppose. What has prompted Kay to wake in the early hours, to go to the roof, to look at the stars, which are, as Kay notes, unusually bright and clear for Seattle? Kay is reminded textually of the skies over British Columbia, the, quote, wide, bright, starlit skies I'd experienced out there in the middle of the forest, far away from the lights of any town or city. But we are in a city. And the literalism of the deductive connection, while looking at the stars, it occurs to Kay that the numbers in the hidden room in the game are arranged in the pattern of constellations, it's, well, it's, it's blunt. And what's stranger still is that we get rare moments of explanatory introspection from Kay that we don't normally get, but they only serve to normalize this strange occurrence. Quote, I was probably just dehydrated, or maybe I'd woken up at a weird time during a deep REM cycle. I grabbed a bottle of water from the fridge and drank the whole thing. End quote. So something is manipulating K. Something is prompting this action in the middle of the night, prompting this perspective in the middle of the night, might even be manipulating the clarity of the starfield above K's apartment building. But let's put a pin in that and switch streams for a moment, because at this point we might also be uncomfortably aware of the apparatus of the plot, of the scaffolding that has been put in place and left in place in order to support what turns out to be, I'll say, a pretty cool puzzle. The next puzzle is all about stars, and lo and behold, Kay has a convenient and never-before-mentioned rooftop from which they can see the stars, prompting the connection, finding the solution. Moreover, Kay clearly has a good working knowledge of stars and stargazing, retroactively giving an explanation for both the impulse and the deduction. We're given exactly what we need to progress the plot. And 
in that sense, it's pretty thin stuff. If we're taking a traditional approach to narrative, it is insubstantial. By convention, and certainly by common consensus, if you happen to wander into those areas of the internet where people loudly and performatively criticize books, you know the ones I mean. By convention, an editor should have caught this, and told Miles to establish much earlier in the text that Kay has a cool rooftop space and is into stars and constellations, thus seeding, foreshadowing, this moment. And honestly, if I'd been Miles' editor, I would have said the exact same thing, because that's kind of what the editor's job is. But there are two responses to this moment that I think are valid and which help our understanding of this book and its context. The first is simply this. We are living in a cultural moment that values the illusion of the comprehensive creative intent, that places a premium, in some cases expects or demands, the creative act encompasses all aspects of a work with complete clarity, with as much depth as will ever be demanded. We are dismissive of works that we perceive as changing over time. The showrunners of your favorite dramas will insist in interview after interview that they've had the plan for the whole show worked out before they even started the first script. Your favorite novelist will insist that the seeming contradictions in their earlier volumes were always intentional and that their new book will explain everything. People in those aforementioned corners of the internet will argue to the bitter end whether or not J.K. Rowling had every word planned out before beginning the first Harry Potter book, despite a frankly astonishing number of contradictions and post hoc fixes. Critics will look at the TV show Lost and dismiss it as being made up as the writers went along. And to some extent, this is understandable, because fictional verisimilitude is one of the things that allows us to more readily connect with the fiction. It allows us to more freely invest our belief. The idea that these things are just casually made up? Well, how are we to know what's important, what's valuable, what's real? In another sense, though, this is maybe just a little adolescent, a staged misrepresentation of the creative process which we have all just decided to agree to believe. Things are, in real life, revised and changed and expanded and contracted and transformed and erased as any creative project takes form. Art is created over time. And that means that the person who writes the last book in the series is, in a very powerful sense, not the same person as they were when they began the series. Editing, as a discipline, exists in part to erase those inevitable changes, to preserve, to create, the illusion of spontaneous, comprehensive creation. But we shouldn't be tricked into believing the myth of the single, declamatory, perfectly apprehended creative act. I don't think it adds anything to our understanding of Harry Potter to scramble to offer an explanation as to why Harry couldn't see Thestrals after the death of Professor Quirrell in the first book. It's because Rowling didn't think of Thestrals yet, and that's okay. I mean, I say that it's okay, but honesty compels me to admit that the calm, accepting, understanding, critical position that I'm describing here is one that I absolutely respect and one that I aspire to, but honestly can't always reach, because I am as much a product of our shared media landscape as anyone else. But whether we think that the position I've described is admirable or not possible or not desirable or not, we have to acknowledge that Rabbits, as a book, plays fast and loose with those conventions. I mentioned in a previous episode the weirdly anticlimactic move that we've seen several times, wherein Kay has an experience in the present of the story, then flashes back to relate a more extreme version of a similar experience. Last week, we talked about the conspicuous seating of the Tower Dream and the Gatewick Moonrise symbol 
right before both elements were introduced to the present of the story. In a sense, this is related to, similar to Echoes, perhaps, the chains of connection which form the basis of the game. It is a common, recurring, possibly fundamental part of what Rabbits is. And I think that there's something happening here. I think that it's consistent both with what we've observed to be true of Kay in last week's episode, really in the series as a whole thus far, and what we will see of Kay and Kay's relationships in the rest of the book. And ultimately, it comes down to a simple question. Who is Kay? So much of our response to Kay as readers stems from a simple fact that is somewhat counterintuitive and certainly somewhat unconventional. Kay is you, is me, is us. Kay's anonymity creates a space for us to inhabit. We don't know what Kay looks like, so Kay could look like us. We don't know what gender Kay is, so Kay could be the same gender that we are. Kay's interiority is expressed almost entirely in terms of external things. Kay doesn't exist outside of their very specific connections to the game, to this plot, to this book. There's a lot of criticism. I guess there was a lot of criticism because I feel like we've moved past the point where there's any active discussion or real thought being applied to these deeply weird and fascinating books. But there was a lot of criticism around the time that Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series was released, pointing out that Bella Swan, the protagonist of those books, was a blank slate, was devoid of real specificity. And there was some interesting work done exploring the idea that the hollow protagonist allowed the self-insertion of the reader directly into the narrative. You could, in effect, take Bella's place. And some readers, some critics, pushed back on that idea, claiming that the reader can't meaningfully self-insert into a narrative that's told in the first person because the constant reminder that these are not your thoughts, that these are not your opinions or actions or feelings, would be alienating. But those critics, I think, have never played games. As players of video games or tabletop role-playing games, we're very comfortable existing in a space where we have both complete ownership of and investment in our sense of self— in our characters, but also accept the mediation of that experience by the systems of the game, by the dungeon master, by the story structure, by the dice. I exist in the game, and the I that exists in the real world is more than capable of parsing and integrating the mechanisms of the game into that sense of self. As I said in the first week, I think, of our discussion of rabbits, I can look at the screen and self-identify as Mario, no problem. Similarly, the readers of Twilight can absolutely situate themselves, not perhaps consciously, but certainly unconsciously, in the body and the being of Bella Swan. And if that can happen in Twilight, which otherwise takes a very conventional narrative form, then it can definitely happen in Rabbits, which is always, at least in part, a game. In exactly the same way as when playing a game, I can express a desire to climb a tree or cast a magic spell or flirt with a princess and... I can accept that the game can push back on those desires and say, not so fast, so I can read rabbits and be situated in the hollow space that is K as K navigates the game-like world. Though this is a first-person text, its mechanics and modes of delivery are often second-person, direct experience, efficient exposition, space for the player. This is how, I think, we make sense of K as a protagonist, which is to say that K as a character isn't very much at all, which makes Kay a stronger vessel for our own journey through the book. And I think that there's something to be said also on the subject of Kay's sexuality in light of that thought, specifically that the ambiguity of Kay's gender means that 
Chloe and Annie and Emily are more acceptable or more conventional choices for romantic or sexual partnership because of the ways in which homosexuality between women is still more socially acceptable than homosexuality between men. The last numbers I saw, which I will dig up and cite in the show notes, suggest that only 65% of women identify as exclusively heterosexual compared to 85% of men. There may also be a demographic imbalance in the readership of this book. I don't know how many more men than women purchased this book. I find it hard to believe that more men than women would have purchased this book just because readership in the US at least is still so skewed toward women. More women read and they read more than men, but it's possible. And maybe I should add to another thought. I think that everything I just said is true and is important to our understanding of the text, but there is an alternative interpretation of this event and of many of the events in the novel which occur exactly at the right time, immediately in advance of a new clue. Perhaps they appear in the linear progression of the novel because that's when they appear in the world. That is, is it possible given what we've seen of different dimensional streams and the influences of probability and the potentially unseen Moriarty figure who is coordinating, directing this game, is it possible that the reason we didn't mention Kay's rooftop space before it was immediately necessary is that Kay didn't have a rooftop space before it was immediately necessary? Is this world more fluid, more changeable than we might suspect? More on that for sure next week. In any case, the clues found in the hidden room in the video game yield a website address on the darknet, and we get a slow zoom in on an alley in Seattle. We get the exploration, we get the rat scare, the less common variant of the cat scare, so common in horror movies, and the reveal of Easton Peruth, the long-sought murmur. We're told again that the game is dangerous, that players are disappearing and dying in greater numbers, and even that there aren't many players left, though still what distinguishes a player from a spectator isn't all that clear. We get an unusual moment from Kay toward the end of the conversation. Quote, Easton took a sip of coffee and leaned back in her chair, metal bracelets jangling around her wrists. I counted them. Ten on each wrist. Twenty bracelets. A twenty-dollar bill in a man's hand in line. Twenty sugar containers on the server station table. I shook my head. The last thing I wanted to do now was fall into some kind of pattern recognition sinkhole. There was a fine line between those patterns which were connected to the game and ones that weren't. And although I felt like I was still operating on the right side of that line, it was getting blurrier every day. I've grown to depend on Chloe and Baron to keep me focused and on track. But Baron was dead, and Chloe wasn't here. I took a slow, deep breath. So this confirms that what we might think of as a game of connections doesn't exactly overlap with rabbits, though there is obviously a shared space. And furthermore, this confirms that patterns of connections aren't always real. That is, they don't always lead us somewhere. And it's honestly a little difficult to know what to make of that, because these chains of coincidence and improbability have proved so reliable in the past. How is Kay able to distinguish between this sequence and the Rockets sequence which led to Emily Connors? Is it simply that these connections are not sufficiently improbable? From there, we reunite with Chloe and go to visit with Neil. And you'll note at the beginning of chapter 33 the emphasis that is put on the relationship between Kay and Chloe. Quote, While we made our way up the sidewalk toward the store, I imagined what it would be like to do all this stuff alone. There was no way I would have been able to handle it. I was really happy that Chloe and I were doing this together. So, firstly, foreshadowing. Secondly, between this moment and the mention during the previous quote in which Kay says that they are grounded by Baron and Chloe, we are leaning on the idea of Kay as a part of a group in a way that we haven't before. 
Are we simply anticipating the turn that we'll get at the end of today's reading, or even just for the tense sequence in Neil's basement, seeding the emotional stakes in the same way as we seeded the tower dream? Or are we to read this as emotional growth for Kay? And is that emotional growth, if that's what it is, natural, organic, or is it sudden? Is it a turn, a twist, a change in something underlying? We find that Neil's basement has been ransacked and that Mother has been taken, and we get another moment of inexplicable action. Kay unscrews the leg from the table as an improvised weapon, but can't answer Chloe's very reasonable question about where that idea came from, which perhaps we wouldn't normally pay attention to, I guess, except that Kay has been on odd autopilot very recently, and it seems to be continuing. They find Neil, and he directs Kay to Italo Calvino's 1972 book, Invisible Cities, a collection of 55 short prose poems describing different fictional cities framed with a conversation between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo, and implied in the middle of the book to actually be a series of descriptions of aspects of Venice. And because it's short, I'm going to read the entire Valdrada poem, the first of the cities and eyes. Quote, The ancients built Valdrada on the shores of a lake, with houses all verandas one above the other, and high streets whose railed parapets look out over the water. Thus the traveller arriving sees two cities, one erect above the lake and the other reflected upside down. Nothing exists or happens in the one Valdrada that the other Valdrada does not repeat, because the city was so constructed that its every point would be reflected in its mirror, and the Valdrada down in the water contains not only all the flutings and juttings of the facades that rise above the lake, but also the room's interiors, with ceilings and floors, the perspective of the halls, the mirrors of the wardrobes. Valdrada's inhabitants know that each of their actions is at once that action and its mirror image, which possesses the special dignity of images, and this awareness prevents them from succumbing for a single moment to chance and forgetfulness. Even when lovers twist their naked bodies, skin against skin, seeking the position that will give one the most pleasure in the other, even when murderers plunge the knife into the black veins of the neck, and more clotted blood pours out the more they press the blade that slips between the tendons, it is not so much their copulating or murdering that matters as the copulating or murdering of the images, limpid and cold, in the mirror. At times, the mirror increases a thing's value. At times, denies it. Not everything that seems valuable above the mirror maintains its force when mirrored. The Twin Cities are not equal because nothing that exists or happens in Valdrada is symmetrical. Every face and gesture is answered from the mirror by a face and gesture inverted point by point. The two Valdradas live for each other, their eyes interlocked, but there is no love between them. End quote. So, the first thing in terms of relevance to rabbits is the way that the mirror city resituates the protagonist as the spectator. The event is the same, though mirrored, but the different perspectives transform what is depicted. Indeed, the residents of Valdrada are more interested in the product of their actions as seen in the reflection than they are in the immediate reality of the act. The lovers perform with a mind on the aesthetic beauty of their own reflection, which isn't them, but exists unto itself, possessing that special dignity of images. What is real is less important than what is depicted. The second thing to note, perhaps, is that the barrier between the two cities cannot be traversed, partly because to do so would destroy the perfect reflection and the mirror city beneath. 
but also because the barrier between the two is illusory. The mirror city doesn't exist beneath the water. It cannot be reached. The third, and perhaps most important thing, is that the images in the mirror city are entangled in meaning with the real objects in the real city. The mirror increases a thing's value, at times denies it. Valdrada is changed in aspect by the existence of its reflection, which, we might infer, is why there is no love between the two cities. And lastly, we can note that the presence of this reflection precludes the possibility of either chance or forgetfulness. The presence of the reflected city makes us forever self-conscious and self-aware. Every act becomes metatextual, existing between two places in constant conversation with its reflected self. And it's difficult to step out of undergraduate English mode into something a little less formal now, it's difficult not to think about the different dimensions that we suspect Kay has been traversing through the course of this book. Is there a connection between Valdrada as it's presented and the dimension of Crow's ominous and luxurious penthouse apartment? His means in particular of looking down into the world and studying it in its minutiae? Is that relationship of distant dominance and entanglement similar to that which is described by Calvino? Are these images possessed of the same special dignity? Is that dignity something that can be manipulated? This, of course, is the briefest sample of what Italo Calvino can do as a writer. He is genuinely fantastic and another writer that I would love to someday tackle here in this podcast. In any case, back to the reading. Neil is now dead, and Kay has a key to a locker at a hotel called The American. Kay and Chloe go to investigate, and (laughs) there's really no nice way to talk about this, so I'm just going to throw this out very briefly and let you guys consider it on your own, I think, lest I be accused of being overly critical of the characters in this text. Kay and Chloe concoct a very specific, plagiaristic, and it seems to me unnecessary lie about Chloe's dead brother in order to trick the clerk at the hotel into letting them access the locker. And that clerk, who seems nothing but nice, is consistently, dismissively referred to as pigtails. And I wonder if there isn't something a little superior, a little contemptuous about our super cool heroes in this book. And I'm thinking back also to the way that they interact with the Navidsonians, and even their continued use of the odious nickname Fat Man to describe Neil. Overall, I like Chloe, I like Kay, but there's definitely a kind of cool kid energy here that occasionally chafes a little. After getting access to the locker, we find an old Super 8 film canister, which we will get to in a moment, but then Kay flashes back to the memory of the girl in the grocery store listening to Bell and Sebastian the day that Kay learned that their parents had died, which is an atypical little vignette that doesn't really connect to the ongoing plot, doesn't seed anything particularly important, but is instead emotionally specific and really quite touching. It's unlike the other memories that we get from Kay through the run of this book, but in its conventionality, it is quite heartwarming and welcome. The main attraction of this part of the book, though, is the film, which depicts the magician being, well, what, torn apart, consumed, erased by the grey shadow creatures? So we have the superficial mysteries here. Who was operating the camera before they were dismissed by the magician? Who made this film? How did the film wind up in the locker at the American? How did Neil get the key? I mean, it is possible to speculate that the answer to all of those questions is the same, that it was Neil himself, but we don't know for sure. 
The image of the tall figure, too tall for the room and standing neck bent, is a deliberate reference to The Slender Man, the internet-era horror story popularized in part by the series Marble Hornets. I will link a sample video in the show notes, not for the faint of heart. Even the camera plays into the iconography of the Slender Man, a myth which positions obsessive filming as a dubious and temporary means of protecting oneself against the creature, and echoes what Darla had to say about remaining aware of the game in order to stay safe. You have to be able to walk that line between too little and too much knowledge. Kay draws the connection for us between their own experience of the shadow creatures and what happened to the magician with some eerie foreshadowing of what will happen if they don't stop playing the game, which is another definitive end-of-chapter resolution that absolutely won't be followed up on. And from there, we leave Chloe in a manic state and return to Kay's apartment, where things take a turn for the decidedly creepy. First, we have the unseen figure banging on Kay's door, then the pursuit by the bicycle and the encounter with the man in the dark gray suit, And then Kay races without conscious thought all the way to Baron Corduroy's apartment and breaks in. This, it seems to me, is another example of Kay being driven by some external force. The rationalization for taking a walk in the first place is kind of thin, though I too, I must admit, walk compulsively when I'm feeling stressed out, so maybe that's not so strange. But Kay initially tries to go to a populated space, certain that the man chasing them won't attack if there are people around, and then pivots to hiding alone in Baron's apartment without any real explanation. Are we supposed to understand that an unseen force is guiding or driving Kay's steps? Are we supposed to be drawing a contrast or a comparison between that force and the shadow creatures? Or the much more solid-looking individuals who were, as far as Kay is concerned, let's emphasize that, giving chase? In any case, inside Baron's apartment, we pick up a new clue, the Apple IIe text adventure game Morellana's Quest, which isn't real, unlike the very famous Zork, which Kay also references in this sequence. Text adventures, now generally referred to as IF or interactive fiction, were a fascinating dead end in commercial video game design, selling millions of copies in the 1980s and then all but dead by 1990, leaving only a handful of writers and designers to continue making new games in a basically non-commercial hobbyist space. If you're interested, Zork is a classic, though it is perhaps a little underdeveloped. The mid-80s Infocom games uh, written by Steve Moretzky and Brian Moriarty are basically the peak of the commercial genre. And the game Counterfeit Monkey by Emily Short is an impossibly rich and ambitious game which best exemplifies the modern era of the form. I'll put the links to all of those in the show notes. And if you guys are interested in setting a new record for lo-fi video streaming, I could be persuaded maybe to play some of these games on Twitch or on YouTube or over in the Discord and chat a little about what is a fascinating cul-de-sac in the history of video game development. Inside a box in Baron's apartment, now reunited with Chloe, Kay finds a cassette tape and a photograph. They then flee to the arcade to listen to the tape, which contains a song by Steely Dan. Then they're interrupted by the arrival of Swan and the twins. And there is the palpable sense at this point that the pace of the plot is increasing. We are now being actively hunted. The frequency of inexplicable events is rising, including the streetlights turning off as Chloe and Kay return to the car after buying the Steely Dan record, though... Again, here we might infer the presence of two active forces, not one. Because the streetlights begin to go out and Chloe and Kay walk faster towards the car. They look back at one point and Kay sees the shadowy creatures, which are far enough away that they can safely run the rest of the way back to the car. So, are the streetlights going out 
a consequence of the shadow creatures, or were they manipulated by some entity or force that wanted to keep Kay safe and accelerate their pace? In chapter 39, summoned by the text message of the towel, we confirm that David Bowie is still alive in the world that Kay currently inhabits, and Graham Parsons too, I guess, that the pioneer of Cosmic Americana, who died in 1973 at the age of 26. And I should probably note, for the record, against the possibility that someday in the future someone listens to this podcast who doesn't personally remember the day that David Bowie died, that he died in 2016, four days before Alan Rickman also passed. Tough days. We go from there to the diner and meet with Swan and the twins, albeit for a very short period of time, before the dark shadows fill the diner and Kay slips into a memory of the nightmares they suffered as a child, which seems to be a pretty clear description of, or I guess partial dreamland metaphor for, particularly taking into account what Emily said in last week's reading about the children of the Gatewick parents manipulating Meacham Radiance when under, quote, moments of extreme emotional distress, end quote. Kay tries the same trick again here, focusing on Chloe and then pulling her out of the diner. Chloe notes that Swan and the twins had disappeared, and it seems as though the best interpretation of these events is that Kay physically pulled Chloe into a different dimensional strand, though it's a dimensional strand in which Chloe's apartment is still Chloe's apartment and David Bowie is still alive. They then discover that they have bought a Steely Dan album with a version of the song Third World Man that doesn't actually exist. This leads them to a thesis on fantasy fiction and the meeting with Sandra Aikman. And this is the moment where even Kay acknowledges their tendency toward dishonesty. Quote, She told us about her continued interest and research into the subject of her thesis, and we explained we were looking for information about something we'd recently discovered using a DNA mapping service. We told Sandra Aikman that Mordecai Kubler was Chloe's grandfather. We totally lied. End quote. It is unclear, honestly, what motivates this lie, and the tone of the line seems to suggest that it's no big deal, but after so many lies being told by Kay throughout this book without any mention or reference to them, it seems odd to highlight this one. The novel that they get from Aikman, The Horns of Terzos, contains a map which highlights the location of the tower in the real world, and in the last chapter of this week's reading, they set off to follow the quest in the book. And there's some fun high fantasy world building happening here and some playful extrapolation from a surprisingly common real world phenomenon, namely fantasy authors using real geography as the basis for their fantasy works. Tolkien obviously begins this by using basically the whole of Europe, but since his work is intended as a foundational myth of those real places, that makes a lot of sense. Similarly, Terry Brooks' Shannara novels use a map of the Pacific Northwest, but since that series is actually post-apocalyptic after the fall novels, that also works. Piers Anthony's Xanth novels use Florida as a geographical outline, though that's about all they take from real-life Florida, and I guess The Horns of Terzos is actually a little more like Neil Gaiman's alternate London in Neverwhere, or to some extent the fictionalized reimagining of the United States in American Gods. In any case, Kay and Chloe begin in the alley with the mysterious graffiti, and all at once, Kay loses ten minutes, coming to in the car already driving to their next location. They go to Bellevue Downtown Park, and are chased out by an unkindness of ravens and a wetness of sprinklers. Then they go to a Starbucks so that Chloe can use the bathroom, and this is where we get the confluence of Harold's, another less common collective noun. And all at once, Chloe is gone. Kay checks her apartment, which is not Chloe's apartment anymore, and then resolves to complete the quest, going to pyramid self-storage, then running from the darkness, slipping into a freight elevator, and then passing out, leaving us with quite the cliffhanger in advance of next week's session. And if that description feels like it was pretty fast, it's because it was. 
the plot has really accelerated, and the feeling in this part of the book is quite breathless. And that will do it for this short reading. Next week, we will finish out the novel with the final four chapters with an extremely short reading, and we will also reflect on what Rabbits is, and I'll answer any listener questions you may have. So get in touch at starsandswordspod at gmail.com. That episode will go out on February 4th, and the following week, February 11th, we're going to start our third book here on Stars and Swords, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. I will have the schedule sketched out properly in time for next week's show, but right now I'm thinking about six weeks working with the structure of the book, one part per week, and then part six and the very short part seven together at the end. That should be manageable and allow for sufficiently rich and deep conversations. Stars and Swords is listener-supported, and if you pledge your support by visiting patreon.com slash nextword, then you will get access to even more, including bonus episodes of this very show in which I talk about adjacent texts. And after some discussion, I should say, I've decided to do two bonus episodes for Rabbits, one on the first season of the Rabbits podcast, and the other because I wanted an excuse to talk about this film on the classic 1992 movie Sneakers. I will try to get the first of those episodes out this week and the second before we get started with Addie LaRue. So if you absolutely need more of this podcast in your life, then the Patreon page is the place for you. Or if you would like bonus episodes from my other podcast, The Last Star in Hollywood, in which I discuss the filmography of Tom Cruise alongside the very brilliant Elizabeth Ray, you can find those on the Patreon page too, including a discussion of the oddly significant Dominic Cena movie Gone in 60 Seconds. The Patreon page can give you that too. Patreon.com slash next word. That'll do it for this week. Don't forget to get in touch with your questions, your comments, your queries, and your thoughts about rabbits in time for next week's wrap-up show. And as I say every week, we totally lied. Thanks for listening.